Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another coronavirus version of No Script, No Problem here on the Believe Podcast Network, the number one podcast network for professionals. Do you believe? No Script, No Problem is the show that takes you behind the curtain of unscripted television and documentaries like never before with insight from some of the best in the business of reality TV, documentary series, competition shows, social experiment, game shows, and much more. From The Prophet to The Masked Singer to Love is Blind to Live PD, if it's unscripted, we'll get into it. I'm your host, Steve Berkowitz. I'm a 15-year veteran producer of unscripted television with shows like Extreme Makeover Home Edition, BattleBots, Outdaughtered, The Rachel Zoe Project, Miss Rap Supreme, and Pros vs. Joes, among my credits. Each week, I talk to the talented people who have made unscripted TV, documentaries, true crime, and game shows, not just something you watch or consume, but a cultural phenomenon. Now, if you enjoy No Script, No Problem, please subscribe and rate the show. It's available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, Luminary, and TuneIn. You can also find it on Believe.com and at Believe Podcasts. And you can follow me on Twitter at Steve Berkowitz and on Instagram at Steve M. Berkowitz. If you're interested in advertising on the show, please contact Believe at Believe.com. All right, let's get started. Today... My guest is a good friend of mine. He's an Emmy-nominated filmmaker, director, producer, writer, and author, and a guitarist. He is truly a renaissance man, if there ever was one. Among his credits, he directed the acclaimed Wu-Tang Clan of Mikes and Men doc series for Showtime, Fresh Dressed, and Word is Bond, as well as producing Rapture for Netflix, The White Rapper Show for VH1, and he serves as Chief Creative Officer at Masspeal. Oh, but that that's not it. He also co-authored Eminem's biography, The Way I Am, and wrote for multiple magazines. And as if that wasn't enough, he plays guitar in a band called The 1865. All right, and I've seen the band. They are pretty awesome. So please welcome Sasha Jenkins. Sasha, thanks for being here, man. Thanks for having me, Steve. <laughs> Was that intro enough? I mean... I don't know if I'm worthy. You missed a couple of things, but it's wow, it's cool. wow. Okay, it's cool. Okay, all right. So you're in New York during all this chaos with COVID nineteen. How are you holding up, man? I'm holding up good. You know, my kid might. I'm in my kid's room right now. He might run in here and ask me for some sugar or something. But um, we're holding up. Homeschooling, uh, working remotely. Uh, currently working on a documentary about Rick James for Showtime. Um, you know, working on that remotely and, um, you know, reflecting on life and what next steps will be after the dust settles. So how is the virus affecting uh, your project for Showtime as well as Mass Appeal? Thankfully, we got a good percentage of what we needed in the can for the film, but there are still some outstanding interviews that will take me to California. I'm in New York, as you pointed out. Um, So I'm not clear on when I'm going to be able to go out there and get those done, but we're going to be editing the film. We're editing the film now. We're making good progress and we'll get it as far as we can get it to. We'll get it to a point that you can watch it and know what it is and understand it and you'll be able to see what the holes are. And so we're doing what we can uh, under the circumstances. That's a good transition point talking about your Rick James doc to you've done, as I said, you know, from Fresh Dress to the Wu-Tang Clan doc. 
documentaries are hot right now from, you know, Tiger King and McMillions. Uh, you know, you have two fire festival docs that are, comp- you know, competing. And now Beastie Boys doc is big on Apple TV. Why do you feel like documentaries, documentary series are so popular right now? Well, I think the industry loves them because they're much cheaper to produce than, you know, a scripted series. And um, I think the world in which we live today, everyone is sort of a documentarian in that they have their own platforms. They have their own Instagram page where, or their Facebook or whatever it is, their social media is constantly documenting their day-to-day moves. So I think the idea of documenting things is commonplace now. And I think that there's a great thirst and desire for it. And as long as you've got an interesting story to tell, people are ready to listen, particularly now where there's no place to go and you're, you're at home. So I imagine after, I mean, I'm, a, I'm assuming this documentary explosion is only furthered by COVID and hopefully it maintains itself after things quote unquote get back to normal. Yeah, I would I would agree. Um, the one thing that does fascinate me about this explosion, as you put it, of documentaries and documentary series is that our attention spans are shorter with social media, with a phone in our hands at all times, and yet long form documentaries and these and ten part documentary series like we're seeing with The Last Dance on ESPN are more popular than ever. Why do you think people are more willing to consume these longer form? storytelling uh, pieces, even though we all kind of have these shorter attention spans? Well, at this point, I think people feel a sense of achievement. I think (laughs) because everyone's attention spans are so short, like being able to sit through a four-part series is like reading a 500-page book, which people don't really read anymore. So, you know, the equivalent is spending, you know, six hours on a documentary series about the child murders in Atlanta, you know? Yeah. Um, There's a sense of, uh, I think people are longing for that connection and longing for knowledge. You know, there's but so much that you can get in a, in a tweet or an Instagram post, but when you can really sit down and take time to learn about someone or a phenomenon, I think people are missing that. And I think that these documentaries provide that. That's a, yeah, that's a great point. Everything now is about kind of sharing what you watched, right? And kind of, oh, well, I've got to see it now too. My friends were telling me last night about the Beastie Boys doc. Now I feel compelled that I have to go watch it, right? Well, before we get kind of into a lot of the stuff that you've worked on and more on the documentary space, I want to talk a little bit about your background and then how you got into being a documentary filmmaker. Uh, Your father, right, was an accomplished filmmaker himself. Uh, Horace Bird Jenkins III. Um, how did what did he work on, and kind of how was he an influence on you in terms of getting into being a creative? Well, my dad was one of the founding producers of Sesame Street. My sister was actually on Sesame Street for a time, um, but he started out as a documentary filmmaker working for PBS. I mean, out of high school, he went to France and. Uh, you know, had interesting experiences over there and came back and said to PBS, hey, I've got the skills. And they gave him a job. And he wound up working on a show called Black Journal, which was the first sort of magazine formatted show in history. And it was about, you know, African-American culture 
This is in the late 60s. So through working on Black Journal, he wound up traveling a bunch uh, overseas, particularly in Africa. He wound up being a correspondent for the show in Africa and wound up producing all these docs and eventually worked on some narrative stuff. He worked on Shaft in Africa because he was, you know, extremely fluent in the culture there. Um, He wound up, when he came back to the States, he wound up working for CBS and there was a uh, children's version of the show, 60 Minutes, called 30 Minutes. And he wound up winning an Emmy for an episode about this sort of exploitation of teenagers who work in the fast food industry. Um, So he had produced a bunch of docs. He also did a documentary about the pyramids in Sudan, which very few people knew much about back then and still don't know much about. Yeah. And he had a desire to get into narrative filmmaking. And, you know, my parents had split up at the time and his new partner or girlfriend was from a region in New Orleans that had this very rich history with sort of Creole culture, black Creole culture. And he learned a lot about it and he wanted to make a narrative film, this sort of Romeo and Juliet love story set in this region. And he wound up writing a script and his girlfriend was friends with uh, a woman who was a member of the Rhodes family. And the Rhodeses are the sort of richest black family in New Orleans. And he was able to get them to help underwrite the production of the film. And he um, had, you know, Richard Pryor was interested in getting involved with the distribution uh, right after the film was completed, my my dad died of heart attack, and basically the film never came out uh, until recently. Right when I did a Google, I did a Google search, and I found an article in the New York Times about an organization that actually found my father's film, and they didn't know much about it. And I reached out to them, and I said, "Hey, I'm a filmmaker too," and blah blah blah. And that led to Cane River recently being released by Oscilloscope, which was my dear friend or my friend, Adam Yauk of the Beastie Boys. That was a company he started before he passed away. Um, So to answer your question, you know, my father was certainly an influence on me in terms of being exposed to film and television at an early age, you know, knowing that my father was a director and a producer of television went a long way. Uh, My mom, who's from Haiti, uh, is a painter. So I was always surrounded by art and creativity in the household, but my father's connections or my father's connection to film and TV had absolutely nothing to do with how I got into film and TV. And it certainly didn't help me because most people didn't believe or most people didn't know my father's backstory. So journalism is actually how I transitioned into it. You know, I was publishing a magazine called Ego Trip. And uh, Ego Trip Magazine was the offshoot of another publication I used to was involved with called Beatdown, which was one of the first hip hop newspapers in the world. After Beatdown, I I co-founded Ego Trip Magazine, which was a music magazine. And then Ego Trip Magazine started to do books. We did a book called Ego Trip's Book of Rap Lists, which had lots of random facts in it about hip hop and music and hip hop culture. And then from there, we did a book called Ego Trip's Big Book of Racism, 
where we sort of took on race from a satirical perspective. Um, that book was given to a woman named Christina Norman at MTV, excuse me, at, at VH1, who was head honcho there. She loved the book and she gave it away as a stocking stuffer one Christmas to her staff. And someone on her staff said, hey, we should do a television show with these guys. So that around 2000, 2001, that led to us producing these sort of talking head style television shows um, for VH1. Uh, the shows that we did were sort of around race and, and popular culture. And we used a lot of rappers as the talking heads because all of us at Ego Trip were music journalists who primarily focused on hip hop. And we knew that rappers had huge personalities. So we did that for a couple of years. And then one Christmas Eve, uh, a gentleman named Jim Ackerman, who was an executive at uh, VH1, took us out for drinks and we were a little tipsy and he was like, Hey, you know, what do you guys want to do next? You know, maybe you should do some reality TV. And I was a little tipsy. And I said, you know what, Jim, we should do a show called the white house where we make white rappers move <laughs> to the South Bronx and put them through the paces to learn about hip hop and sort of compete to be the next, you know, top white rapper. And he said, that's a brilliant idea. So that led to the white rapper show. Um, and we weren't, we didn't have the production chops. Ego Trip didn't, we were not a production company. So they paired us with a gentleman named Ken Mock, who, you know, yes. uh, who was the man behind top model and lots of other shows. And so we partnered with Ken and that was great. We learned a lot from Ken. And, um, so we did white rapper show, which was a success. It was hosted by MC search of the rap group Third Base, uh, a legendary white rapper in his own right. And the second season, there was a new president at uh, VH1. Mind you, like I believe that if we did season two of White Rapper, it would have been a smash because we had huge ratings for White Rapper 1. Agreed. But the, the new president felt like you know the audience, VH1's audience was largely women and we've got to cater to them. So our response was Miss Rap Supreme, which Mr. Berkowitz here had the, I had the great privilege of working with him on that. I did. And uh, that was shot in California and Skid Row in a crazy old hotel or warehouse or something weird. And um, after Miss Rap Supreme, Ego Trip had some internal issues and things kind of came apart. And I was thinking about what I want to do next. So I became partners at another production company called Roadside Entertainment. I had my own sort of shingle under their umbrella called Automatic Films. And from there, I wound up developing a show around the professional skateboarder, Terry Kennedy, African-American skateboarder. That show wound up on BET. The show was called Being Terry Kennedy. And then I... Uh, was we produced a documentary film about 50 Cent called The Origin of Me, where we went to South Carolina and had 50 reconnect with some of his relatives who have lived in this area for hundreds of years and, you know, found the people who owned the plantation that his ancestors lived and worked on and brought his aunt there and had this really um, interesting experience uh, with 50 Cent. And Working on that project, there was a scene that kind of came undone and I had the opportunity to direct. And it was in that moment I realized like, wow, I can I can direct, I can do this. And so that's when I 
made the transition from being a co-EP because, you know, Ken Mock was the guy with the production company and the experience. You know, I went from being a co-EP to an EP on the shows like Terry Kennedy um, to finally um, developing the idea for Fresh Dress, the film about the history of hip-hop fashion, which debuted in 2015, and that's kind of like the first doc I ever directed. What was what happened in that scene that made you realize, okay, I can do this, I can do my own projects? Well, you know, as a journalist, I understand what I'm looking for in terms of what I need to hear to make it make the story interesting and robust. And we were at a museum that was dedicated to the red shirts. Now, who were the red shirts? Most people don't know this. But they were like the precursor to the Ku Klux Klan. And they were called the Red Shirts. And this whole building was like a shrine to these folks. And we're in South Carolina. And I'm with 50 Cent and this nice older white woman, a, a local who is, you know, basically one of the daughters of the Confederacy. There's a different name for it that she gave me. I don't remember. Maybe it's the daughters of the Red Shirts. I don't know. But she was giving a very polite, straight-faced tour of this museum that basically is a tribute to the clan. So that was just a really bizarre experience. Yeah. And the director who isn't black, not that being black or white made a difference, but I think he felt a little like this is a weird, I don't know how to really address this. This is weird. He's Jewish in a clan sort of shrine with 50 cent, you know what I mean? I yeah, think sure. it was, it was just kind of awkward. And he gave me the opportunity. He was like, yo, take over, you know? And it was in that moment where I was like, okay, I can do this. I understand what this is. Like, and I think I was able to get the most out of the scene and, um, or, or at least, I mean, it's a documentary. So I was just helping to just push the conversation forward because 50 was a little, I think he was a little like a little freaked out or didn't really understand how to process it. So I was able to help both parties process what it is that they were trying to communicate. And in the end, um, the scene turned out to be pretty great. So it, it really gave me the, the understanding of what are the things I, some of the things I could do as a director and, I've been doing it ever since. Can you talk about that 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 ability to kind of take things in your own POV and go with it and how that's that's been a key to your success? I enjoy being fluent in different cultural languages, meaning, you know, whether it's heavy metal or hip hop, you know, one might look at heavy metal and hip hop and say, wow, those are two different extremes. Like one is heavy metal is extremely white and they dress a particular way and hip hop is extremely black and they dress a particular way. But if you look at where culture is now, like heavy metal and hip hop, if you look at these kids, the way they dress, you'll see a hip hop kid with a Metallica shirt. Um, I was that kid in the eighties. I was a kid who was into everything. And so that, you know, being a, a black kid in New York city who was, into hip hop, but also on the punk scene, it put me in a really interesting position to interact with lots of people that kids like me didn't interact with. I mean, back then, New York City, and it is still is in many ways, 
pretty segregated. I mean, you're on the train with all kinds of people, but in my day, unless you were on a sports team, you didn't really leave your neighborhood. You you basically played in the, in your neighborhood with the kids you played with and who you grew up with. And because I was into hip hop, because I was into punk, because I was into graffiti, all of these things took me to neighborhoods that were far away from where I grew up. And that exposure to different people, different ideas, different you know, economic classes, different neighborhoods, different languages, all of that sort of prepared me for where we are today, which is because of the internet, everything is, culture is all sort of blended in a, in a way that I think is exciting. And I was, ex- before all these pieces came together, I was excited about the pieces individually. I, I studied and, and became a participant in all of these things individually. And so now, now that all of these ideas kind of exist as one, you know, I'm still contemporary in many ways where lots of people who were my age, who were just writing about hip hop or doing things when I was doing things, aren't necessarily contemporary in, in the same ways I am. And that's not to knock them. Um, I think most people get phased out eventually if you get too tied into a particular scene or a particular idea. It just so happens that I was always interested in lots of different scenes and lots of different ideas. And now that all those ideas have converged, it's it's given me a little bit more life. Who knows how much longer um, I'll have this new breath, but I think... <laughs> You know, I'm just I feel like I'm just getting started with my with my filmmaking. I hope so. I believe so. Yeah, of course. Um, let's talk about Fresh Dressed, um, which I, I'm a big fan of. I loved Fresh Dressed. Um, so 2015, uh, it's a, a documentary about uh, the evolution of black fashion. Tell me a little bit about the process in terms of how, funding it as well as, um, you know, booking these people because it was your first documentary and then the process of getting it to Sundance and selling it to CNN. Well, the listeners should know the reason why Steve really likes fresh dress is because he's a real sneaker weirdo. He's got <laughs> lots of sneakers, fancy sneakers. He takes pictures of his sneakers. So that, that is sort of okay. That is what. That's not a hundred percent true. I I do I enjoyed the film. Okay. No, no, no. I know, but but I think you enjoyed the film. The point I'm trying to make is the aesthetic that came out of hip hop, which was putting a premium or putting a, assigning such great value and esteem to shoes, to yes. sneakers. There's, yes. That wasn't rock and roll culture. Rock and roll culture was wearing Chuck Taylor Converse's and them getting dirty was like a good thing. Even the Rolling Stones, if they wore like, we call them Adidas, but it's actually Adidas it is. shoes. That's true. You know, they would scuff them up. It wasn't about, you know, um, it wasn't about having really nice sneakers because rich white people don't have to worry about their sneakers. That's like the last thing they're thinking about. And when you're coming from the inner city, when you don't have much, the idea of having $90 sneakers on is a big deal. It says that you have money, that you're going places, or at least that's what it meant to hip hop. So Fresh Dressed was, it started because a friend of mine was working for Pharrell's clothing company. Uh, BBC, Billionaire's Boys Club. And that company was semi-acquired by the same company that semi-acquired Rockwear, Jay-Z's company. So all of these brands who were under that umbrella would have these marketing meetings. And someone at Rockwear, which is Jay-Z's company, said that they wanted to do like a half hour infomercial 
for BET on the virtues of how great RockAware was. And my friend Philip Leeds just raised his hand for some strange reason and said, you don't want to do that. You want to talk to my friend Sasha Jenkins. And then there's a guy named Jamil Spencer who worked there, who I knew from one of my days at Vibe Magazine. He's like, oh, I know Sasha. Like, yeah, you should meet with Sasha. Like, I think he'll have better ideas than this. <laughs> and so I wound up meeting Jamil and I said, yo, you don't want to do like a half hour infomercial for BT. You're going to spend like five, 600 grand. Why not like help finance a documentary about the history of hip hop fashion? And, you know, obviously Rockaware is a part of that story. And it can work very organically. And it was a great story to tell. He thought that was a good idea. He's like, but I've got to get Jay-Z on board. So I told my agent at CAA, like, look, it feels like this thing has some traction. And my agent said, Andrew Miller, a wonderful man, said, if you can get Jay-Z on tape, we can make something happen. So then I called uh, my friend Jamil and said, hey, they're saying if I can get Jay-Z on tape, they can sell this thing. And then he said, okay, cool. He called me back two hours later. He was like, can you go to England tomorrow? <laughs> so we worked it out. I got on a plane to England and it was the last stop on a major tour. Um, and I get there, I'm backstage and I see it's like Florence in the Machine, this one, that one, Santo Gold, blah, blah, blah. And I see Jay-Z and I see him see me but he goes to everyone but me. And I'm like, oh man, I just flew all the way out here and this guy's not even gonna talk to me. And then eventually he made his way to me and said, I see you, we're gonna talk. Because I had met him before in New York and we had a great conversation. He's like, don't worry, we're gonna take care of what you need. And I was like, great. So then I'm standing there and someone taps my shoulder and I turn around and someone hands me some champagne and I just say, thank you. And I look up and it was Rihanna, like Rihanna handed me champagne, I'm like, oh shit. <laughs> Where, this is amazing. Um, eventually, Jay-Z sat for the interview in like a trailer, and there's all this noise in the background, but we got a decent interview, and he was really great on camera. And, you know, uh, CA lined up to meetings, and then I met with a gentleman named Vinny at uh, CNN Films, Hip Hop, and we had a great conversation, and he signed up the film at CNN Films. That's how it was financed. I guess, uh, yeah, getting getting Jay Z will is is a big help when you're trying to sell a documentary. Well, here's the funny thing about that. So then Jay Z goes cold, right? He disappears. He gets new management. Like they're not returning calls. He completely goes cold, right? So okay, okay well we're gonna we're gonna make this film, and then ironically, Nas winds up being a partner at Mass Appeal. Nas and I went to the same junior high school, so then. All of a sudden, I'm partners with Nas, and now Nas is an executive producer instead of Jay-Z, which is hilarious because, you know, if yes, you know hip-hop, you know their history. They got beef. No, but they're friends. They're cool now, but they had, they had notorious beef. Right. And um, so the film makes it into Sundance, and this guy comes up to me and introduces himself, and he's like, you know, I work for Jay. And, and, and I, I called him, and I told him how amazing this film is. And I said, tell your boy Jay that he was supposed to be an executive producer on this film and that he completely ghosted me, but tell him I say thanks. Um, so I actually owe Jay-Z a, a, a sincere thank you because his sign-on or the interview that he granted me uh, for the sizzle was what really helped sell the thing. So I cannot discount the power of Jay-Z and I'm very happy that Jay-Z and Niles are friends. So from Fresh Dressed, 
You go to projects like Burn Motherfucker Burn, Word is Bond, Rapture. Did How did Fresh Dressed kind of launch you into the world of being a documentary filmmaker? It seems like once you did that and it was so well received, did that almost, was that an initiation into the world of, of being a documentary filmmaker? For sure. But, you know, for me, people ask me, what was the transition like from journalism to documentary filmmaking? I'm like, I'm just doing the same thing that I did, but with a camera. Yeah. You know, so it wasn't really much of a transition for me. I'm naturally inquisitive. And, you know, when I do a story, I I tend to interview, I over interview, I'll interview 70 people um, for a story. So for me, the fresh dress experience, I mean, going to Sundance, you know, it, it, you know, I, I don't have much of a profile on social media. I'm not really out there like that. But the Sundance thing uh, really made a huge difference. And then it airing on CNN made a huge difference. And Vinny getting behind it is a big deal because people like Vinny and respect Vinny in the documentary world. And it, it, it feels like the documentary world isn't so big. I mean, they all know each other. They're all friends, all the executives. They've all worked together in one way or another. So it's a small world and I was able to um, make an impression with Fresh Dressed. From Fresh Dressed to Burn Motherfucker Burn, Word is Bond, Rapture, and into Wu-Tang Clan of Mike's Men. How has your storytelling and your style developed? For me, it's really about getting folks to open up and really going down rabbit holes. I think taste, I realize that like technique is important, but taste is 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 equally important, if not more important. I mean, a million people could have made a film about the Wu-Tang Clan. I knew that I wanted to make a film or a series that unpacks where hip-hop comes from. I mean, so many people are enamored by Wu-Tang. They think that they're great. They are great. They're one of the greatest groups of musical groups of all time. Forget the genre. But I often wondered, as someone who came from the inner city, all these people who don't look like me love Wu-Tang. Do they understand what it is that these guys are rapping about and what they went through, what their experiences were that sort of tailored this music? Do people understand that? And so I wanted to do something that really peeled away who these guys were, or rather peeled away or or chiseled away at who they became and how who they are and what their music sounds like is a reflection of and a reaction to the environment from which they came. One of the things that I felt was really effective in the Wu-Tang Clan doc was bringing them together in the theater and having them watch some of a lot of their old clips, their old footage. Can you tell me a little bit about what was the impetus to, to do those types of scenes? And they seem to be really effective and get a lot of reactions uh, from the guys. The scene in the theater... I just know that, first of all, these guys have known each other for so long, but they also live in different places. And that chemistry, you can't really see it apart from them. They've got great chemistry as individuals and they they give great interviews. But I knew that once you got these guys together in a room, the energy would just be electric. And, you know, they have internal conflicts. They don't always get along, but there is something about their collective experience that they know deep down that there is a bond, there is a family bond. And they're, they are brothers, I believe that. And brothers don't always get along. 
but there's a dynamic that only a family can have. And I knew getting them together, that family dynamic would be apparent. And it also kept people honest. You know, they, they don't always agree on the same things. And when you're interviewing eight or nine different people in separate locations, everyone can say whatever they want. But when they're all in the same room together and something comes up and they don't all agree, even with the body language, even if they're not saying things, there's so much information in the body language of those scenes that, um, you know, I, I had a feeling that it would be great. I couldn't guarantee it, but it, it turned out pretty good. It, it absolutely did. You're nominated for an Emmy for uh, writing. Um, and and to, to move then into a Rick James documentary for Showtime, now you're having to tell a story about a guy who's not alive anymore. How difficult is that? Because now you're, you know, it's, it's, I'm sure it's a bigger, bigger challenge or a very different challenge. It's a different challenge, but thankfully there's lots of great archival. There are also great audio interviews that he's done over the years. And he was such a big personality and so many people who knew him have very colorful stories to tell. So we're still making it. I feel like it's going to be pretty good, but you know, we're still, we're still crafting it and shaping it, but we have the benefit of really great archival, great music and a guy who in, in many respects was a musical genius, but it was also a tortured mortal. So telling that story is, is, is going to be a challenge, but I'm up for it. How did the Chappelle episode with Rick James, how is that affecting your ability to tell his story effectively? Well, you know, people who knew him have very mixed feelings about it. Some people say that's who he really was and it was funny and others feel like it reduces him to being a caricature yeah. of himself. And and But that's the beauty of Rick James. You know, on one hand, he is his genius. On the other hand, he is this kind of funny guy. But he wanted he wanted his music to be taken seriously. So that's the challenge. Like, how do you tell a story about a guy who popular culture remembers him as a guy who says, I'm Rick James, bitch. How do you get them to, to remember or to learn? Because a lot of people just know him. A lot of younger folks just know him as a guy who says, I'm Rick James, bitch, but don't know his music. How do you get them to understand and appreciate his musical genius? And how do you separate the guy who may have tortured women with hot crack pipes? How do you separate that guy from the musical genius? Yeah. That because these days, some people will say, well, because he tortured a woman with the crack pipe, he should be canceled. He's a horrible person. You can't, you can't appreciate his art anymore. He's terrible. And that's, these are the kinds of conversations that happen today. Documentaries right now, right, love to tell these controversial stories, whether it's like an Aaron Hernandez doc, right, or, or Tiger King, right, or Don't Fuck With Cats, right? Like, what is the role of a documentarian? Is it more tell a POV, take that specific POV that will kind of rile up the audience? Or do you feel like you kind of have to be balanced? You have to tell the truth create uh you know create a story that is factual and then let the audience decide or is there room for both ways of telling a story you have you need balance you know for me i just strive for balance i think as long as you are looking at it from the perspective of a journalist and a journalist is someone who is fair and balanced and nothing is off the table and i think in the climate that we're in everyone has their own platform going back to instagram or whatever platform people choose to use people are pontificating their points of view 
often. And a lot of people get sucked up in the internet and basically believing the hype or believing the first thing they read or buying into a platform that has a particular point of view and just sticking with that. Where I think the role of journalism is to present all sides. And as long as you're providing the facts, if I'm providing you the facts and you still don't get it, then there's really nothing more that I can do. And that's the world that we live in now. You give people facts and someone tells you it's fake news and they don't believe it. Now, you know, someone says they were assaulted by Rick James. I wasn't there. Yeah. You know, but I have to give this person the platform to sort of express what their experience was. And I try my best to make sure there's a counter to that. You know, while there's people who will say Rick James might have done A, there are easily lots of other people who said that I never knew that Rick, you know, I sure. never saw that guy. So sometimes the truth is somewhere in the middle, but you have to give people all of the pieces so they can sort of put together the puzzle they want to put it to, the puzzle that they would like to see. Of course. Yeah. That's my job. Yeah. Um, with that, with the kind of knowledge that you've gained over the past several years in terms of becoming uh, a filmmaker, what advice do you give to people who are doing their first documentary or want to do their first documentary? You and I have talked, I'm in the, you know, the early stages of doing a documentary and it's a big shift from producing a reality show to then taking on a project of your own. What's the advice that you give people? Well, you've got to remain curious and you've got to think about all the angles. You've got to think about all the questions people are going to ask. You've got to think about what may or may not be missing and what you can or cannot deliver. Um, people, when it comes to documentaries, I mean, I haven't seen Tiger King yet. I can only imagine how nuts it is. You know, the stakes are, have, are becoming higher and higher in terms of what the payoff needs to be Yeah. Uh, in order to keep people engaged or in order to make sales because as these stories become more nuanced and more extreme and more bizarre, you, you, you can't run in the opposite direction. You have to have things that are competitive in that space. You have to have stories that are going to be able to cut through all of the other choices that people have. You know, um, you have something like Quibi, which is supposed to cater to, you know, all of us now suddenly having very short attention spans, which is totally true. You've got Quibi, Hulu, you've got Netflix, you've got Amazon, you've got regular television, you've got all of these choices now. And so you really, you're competing against, you know, before you were just competing against, you know, people in the States, storytellers in the States. Now you're competing with the world and the world is watching. So you really have to have stories that can speak to folks from all walks of life with things that are very relatable. Look, we're all dealing with uh, coronavirus right now, and production is is shut down almost entirely. Where do you think we go from here? I mean, it's kind of interesting that you do have Quibi that just launched, and you got HBO Max, and Peacock follows on that. You know, people are watching and absorbing more content than, than probably they have in a long time simply because we're all at home, but it's going to take a minute to get things back up and running, who do you think, you know, how do you think we're all going to get going, uh, right, you know, as we come out of this? I think it's it's going to be, I don't really know. I think, um, as I understand it, folks are optimistic that maybe towards the end of the summer, California may open up and some shooting will resume. Um, 
you know, me personally, I'd love to get back out there and get what I need to get done done, but I might have to sort of have a two person crew go to someone's house and set up the cameras and yeah. set me up on Skype yeah, and put me, put me in the position where I would be sitting if I was doing an interview and do my interview like that. You know, that might have to be the way it goes down, which it won't have the same, it's much different connecting with someone over a computer, you know, over sure. Sure. technology versus being in the same room, but I've got to get this movie finished, you know? Of course. Um, before we go, I've got to ask about the 1865, your band. I saw them play and you didn't even tell me, you know, that you played guitar. You, you just totally surprised me. Tell the audience a little bit about the 1865 um, and, and where, you know, where you, where they can find your music. Well, I've been playing in bands for a long time. And the 1865, why are we the 1865? Well, you have all these bands. Like, we're the 1975. And it's funny. Someone wrote about the 1865 and wrote, my God, please, no more the bands. Like, today I got music from a band called, called The 1865. Like, I can't even take them seriously. So I think um, it's sort of a play on you know, where rock and roll is, because in many ways, rock and roll is kind of old hat. But also, to me, and to us, you know, 1865 was an important year for many Americans. And I think for America, it's when the Emancipation Proclamation went down, and we were all supposed to be free and have all these freedoms. Well, it feels like 1865 and 2020, we're, we're still sort of squabbling over the same old things. And it feels like in many ways it's getting worse. So I wanted to make music that used the past to address what was going on, what's going on in contemporary life. And uh, we recorded an album called Don't Tread on We about a year ago on Mass Appeal Records. And um, it's available on Spotify and all the, you know, wherever people get music today. We, we did some vinyl. I think it's mostly sold out. And uh, you know, I saw Steve in L.A. We played uh, downtown Los Angeles and Steve came down. I, it's odd that I didn't tell him that I played guitar in the <laughs> band. But speaking of COVID, like we were we were slated to play open for Metallica in October at Aftershock Fest in Sacramento. But I don't know if that's happening now. Uh, Probably not. Oh, my God. So, wow. Yeah. Yeah, okay. that would have been cool. Yeah. But, you know. So. I mean, we're really low on the bill, but still to be able to say that you open for Metallica would be incredible, but we'll see what happens. All right. Well, we'll I, I will. Uh, yeah, I will keep my fingers crossed for that one, my friend, for sure. Yeah. All right, Sasha, I'm going to let you go. Thank you for joining me on No Script. No problem, brother. Thanks for having me. Okay. Talk soon, Steve. Take All right. Everybody out there, thank you for listening. If you enjoy the show, please subscribe, download, rate the show. It's available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, Luminary, and TuneIn. You can also find it at Believe.com and at Believe Podcasts. You can follow me on Twitter at Steve Berkowitz and Instagram at Steve M. Berkowitz. Once again, please remember to subscribe, download, and rate it with five stars. You can also write a question if you have one. And then I'll answer it on the show. You can email your questions to me, no script, no problem podcast at gmail.com. If you're interested in advertising on the show, 
please contact Believe at Believe.com. Thanks to Mike DeLay and Real Voice LA for the audio connection. And thank you for listening. Until next time, I'm Steve Berkowitz for No Script, No Problem. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.